Hey, deserving listeners, I thought I would just read patron emails today, so let's get into that. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. And if you have not already become a patron, do so now. Go to the computer. It actually kind of requires you to do some extra steps. You can't just do it on your phone, or maybe you can do it on your phone. But anyway, you go to patreon.com. Become a patron of the podcast, and you'll get all sorts of special things, including access to the premium episodes. Part of your pledge goes toward charities that we support. You will also get preferential treatment regarding emails, hence this episode in which I am responding to patron emails. Let us get into it. This first email is from patron Sid. She says, hello, Kirk. I am female, by the way, if that makes any difference. You can't tell by my name. Thanks for the podcast. I don't mind you talking out of your ass at all. Ass talking is fun. So (laughs) patron Sid is referring to the fact that sometimes I will say, well, I'm probably talking out of my ass right now. And so she is reassuring me and saying that she doesn't mind when I talk out of my ass because, of course, ass talking is fun. She goes on to say, so here's my situation. I have a trauma history from childhood. I went back into full-blown PTSD in 2009 after my father died. I also have some very significant issues with insecure attachment Neither of my parents were into the parenting thing. My father was warm, extremely smart, and really funny. I loved him, but he was was not a parent. I did not call him dad. I called him by by his first name. So flash forward to today, for three years, I worked with an excellent therapist who had a very good understanding of trauma. We did some EMDR, and I just and we also did some just straight up talk therapy. I don't know exactly what modality or approach she used, but I became very attached to her and she helped me a lot. She left to take another job, another position. I was not able to go with her to her new practice because she was only going to work for brief periods with clients in crisis rather than long-term clients. Since then, I have not been able to find a therapist I really connect with. The last one I tried out was a disaster. He used a model like the one you described in the episode on TFCBT, or Trauma-Focused Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Recently, my meds therapist, my medication therapist, has recommended DBT for me. I am familiar with the skills, but have never been in a strict DBT program. Since you were talking about this movement toward toward evidence-based therapies, could you do an episode about DBT? I'm not completely sold on it as a solution for me. I feel that I need more support and trauma-based therapy, but very skilled therapists with knowledge of trauma are hard to find, and this might be okay for me in the interim. I'd also be open to any suggestions you might have for me. Thank you very much for the podcast. I appreciate it very much. Well, okay, so there's a lot of things here to unpack, but first off, let me just talk about my knowledge of DBT or dialectical behavior therapy. 
I originally, upon reading this email, thought I would do a whole episode on DBT, but I really don't know enough about it to do it justice. And it's a fairly specialized form of therapy, so it'd be hard for me to talk about it without researching it for a long time. And I'm already going down a few rabbit holes regarding academic pursuits right now, namely a massive paper on supervision that I'm writing. It's turning into a mini dissertation, as they always do. I can never just do something a quarter of the way I have to like read. When I use the word literally, I mean it literally. I literally have to read every single article and book about a topic before I can consider myself ready to write. And so that's what I've been doing about supervision. So if I did that with DBT, I'm sure that would take me another six months and that won't be helpful to me. So uh, I'm not going to dive into it. So I'm not going to be able to do a whole episode about it. Incidentally, I'll just mention back in the day, like way back in the beginning of the podcast days, probably in the first year in 2008, I thought I would do a special episode about DBT. And I thought, well, geez, I know so many DBT people in the area. In fact, Marshall Linehan, the person who invented DBT, lives in Seattle and teaches at University of Washington or UW, where I went to school. And why not have Marshall Linehan on the podcast? And so I reached out to them and I, it was a set up. Marshall Linehan was going to be on the podcast. Everything was a go. We were going to do video. We were going to go to the University of Washington. We were going to highlight her. We were going to. It's a, it was going to be a full. This is back when we did like, you know, video. And um, this is back when I had like a, a camera crew and a, and sound guys and <laughs> and <clears throat> it, it was a full production. It was insane. But now it's just a little of me in a dark room talking into a microphone. Back then it was a big deal and. And it was all about to happen. And then Marshall Linehan said, actually, the more I look into this podcast, I don't like it because the guy, Kirk, it calls the podcast Psychology in Seattle, and Kirk is not a psychologist. And so, therefore, it doesn't have the integrity that I would hope for, and so, therefore, I'm not going to be on his podcast. And this uh, bothered me quite a bit because the word psychology is a general word. If you're not in the business, you're probably like, what is, what is he talking about? Well, if you're in the field, you understand that the word psychology has been basically taken over by people who are licensed psychologists. And uh, it's so complicated, but in a nutshell... There's, there's many different professions in psychotherapy and psychology, and one of them, one of the professions is called a psychologist or a licensed psychologist. And, you know, you have psychiatry, you have counselors, you have therapists and psychotherapists, and blah, blah, blah. But anyway, you have these people called psychologists, and their organization, the American Psychological Association, has lobbied to eliminate all use of the word psychology outside of things that are directly related to the APA. American Psychological Association, and uh, so there's this, uh, and and I think there's a reason for that. It's because they think that if they can possess the word psychology, then anytime the word psychology is used, then they get control over it or something, and it has to do with money and funding and legitimacy and blah blah blah. But anyway. 
And so when she said, boy, he calls it psychology in Seattle, um, you know, I'm not going to be on a show because he's not a licensed psychologist. Incidentally, since that time, I have received a doctorate in psychology and am qualified to be a licensed psychologist, but I'm actually, I'm, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and I don't really need to be a licensed psychologist. There's really no benefit to me in adding another license to my name. So although I'm like, you know, 99.9% the way there to be a licensed psychologist, I'm actually not taking the test because I don't have the time to study for it. And I just don't care because again, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and I get all the benefits from that. And there's actually some drawbacks to becoming a licensed psychologist in my life right now. So, you know, that's a little bit of that on that. But Back back then in 08, I did not have my doctorate yet, and but I had a master's in, guess what, psychology. And so I could call my podcast Psychology in Seattle. Plus, psychology to the general public is the word that people use when referring to all things psychological. And so if I called it something like marriage and family therapy in, in Seattle, then people wouldn't know what that meant necessarily and uh, it wouldn't encapsulate it as well. And so, anyway, that's the backstory on that. So Marshall Linehan didn't want to come to the podcast because I called it Psychology in Seattle, and I wasn't a psychologist. But another DBT person that I knew through a friend said that she would come on the podcast. I was like, oh, that's good. You know, have an expert talk about DBT. And then we're, you know, we're setting it up. Uh, again, there's a film crew, and we're going to promote her practice, and we're going to do this whole thing, and it's, it's going to be elaborate. And then she sends me, she starts sending me all these emails, and she's saying, okay, well, in order for us to do this episode, Umberto can't be on the podcast, or if he is on the podcast, he, he can only say these particular things. And she started making demands on me about how I was going to make my podcast. <laughs> she was, if I'm going to be on your show, and she wasn't even saying that. She's like, okay, well, so, you know, uh, what I want you to do, she's just started making all these demands. And, I, and I'm like, wait a second, this is my podcast. You're a guest on my podcast. You, and the, the, the thing that really got under my skin was she told me, uh, that Umberto couldn't introduce himself the way that he introduces himself. She said, I don't like the way he introduces himself, and I, I don't want him to do that. And I became really defensive for my friend Umberto, and I didn't actually say anything verbally or over email. I, I think I just sort of drifted away and just didn't reply, and I was like, okay, I'm not going to deal with you. And so that ended my pursuit eight years ago to have DBT, as a central focus of an episode. And ever since then, uh, you know, I've just never really returned to it, partially because I just have a bad taste in my mouth with two figures in DBT in Seattle. And it, so, you know, since then I, I've met other people that are experts in DBT and they're, you know, fine individuals. But but anyway, that, that's uh, that's all that. All right. So anyway, uh, in response to patron Sid, I will say, again, it's a very specialized therapy, and uh, I don't know that much about it, but here's what I can say about it. It's uh, big in Seattle, again, because it was developed here at UW, 
in the 1970s by, again, Marsha Linehan. She's a professor at UW. It was designed by Marsha Linehan to treat borderline, and it's been expanded somewhat to treat other issues. But it's still widely known for being an empirically proven and evidence-based method of treating borderline. Marsha claims that she, she actually suffers from borderline, and uh, she is attracted to the treatment of borderline because she indeed suffers from borderline herself. Some say that dialectical behavior therapy is similar to cognitive behavior therapy, or they say that CBT, cognitive behavior therapy, is uh, integrated with mindfulness to become DBT. They'll say DBT is a combination of CBT and mindfulness. Or others will say that DBT is more of a class than therapy. You know, it's, it's more of a psychoeducation class or a skills class than it is therapy because DBT is often conducted with groups of clients who work on assignments and it's uh, specifically designed to help clients develop skills for emotional regulation. So, you know, for instance, anger management, if, you know, there will be courses on anger management, you don't necessarily call that therapy, you just call it an anger management course. Well, DBT, if you saw it in action, in, in some ways, in some parts of it, it can very much look like an anger management class. It's, it's, a, it's an effective class for emotional regulation, but for some, they wouldn't call it therapy, you know, uh, because it's, it's very structured and there's a lot of instruction. And it's for these reasons, basically, that it's not really for me. When I have looked into DBT, I have I have valued its usefulness and referred people to DBT groups, but for my own style and my own professional satisfaction and enjoyment, I don't uh, look into DBT and don't employ it. I mean, I, I employ its principles because its principles are actually shared by many different forms of therapy, and they're and they're fairly intuitive. But but I don't. Uh, you know, I've had opportunities to become trained in DBT and actually run DBT groups, and uh, it just doesn't appeal to me because it it's it's very formal and uh, again, just the kind of stuff I'm into just isn't really like that. But but I totally respect it, and I I have a few good friends of mine that actually run DBT groups in Seattle, and they really like it. There's actually a big demand for it because there are many people with emotional regulation issues, people with borderline who, uh, who, who need this sort of therapy and don't do well in other forms of therapy or other therapists tend to not want to work with these people. And so they'll say, well, DBT, why don't you go to a DBT group? Cause I don't like dealing with you. So it's, it's a fairly, uh, there's a, there's a fair amount of demand for it. So in conclusion about DBT, it's, it's a good therapy. It's proven to work. It's non-judgmental, which is nice. It, it accepts people with borderline and emotional regulation issues in a very non-judgmental way, which, which is great. I, I respect that. It's highly supportive. I, I actually, it's, it's very supportive to the clients. I, I think I remember hearing from my friend who does this all the time. I think he said that 
they as therapists are on call 24-7 to their clients. And their clients are actually encouraged. I could be wrong about this, but this was my impression of my memory of what he was saying is during a particular phase of therapy, the clients are actually encouraged to contact the therapist whenever they want. And the therapist is there to respond in compassionate, therapeutic, DBT sort of ways to in, to help clients become securely attached, I think. I'm not entirely sure, but but it can be very supportive to people. It's not necessarily just one hour a week of therapy. I think it's it's more round the clock, if, if that makes any sense. Um, and also, I'll say that DBT can be useful for anybody. It's not just useful for people with borderline. The skills can be useful for, for, uh, for all of us, <laughs> emotional regulation skills, interpersonal skills, uh, you know, mindfulness practices, all these things are very useful. And so if, if you looked into the specifics of DBT, you'd be like, oh, actually, I could, I could work on that. So um, maybe one day I'll get an expert on the show to talk about it, but that is what I know about it for now. Those are my impressions. But patron Sid also gets into a few other things here. She says that she really liked her therapist. Things were going very well for PTSD. And then she lost her therapist, which is, you know, always a tragedy. And she went looking for more therapists, and she found one, and then it was a disaster. And she says that he used a model like the one I described in the episode about trauma-focused CBT. Um, I, I don't know exactly what that entailed, but my guess is is that the therapist had no idea what he was doing and utilized a very forceful, uh, prescriptive, manualized treatment for trauma that didn't account for the complexities of, of trauma therapy, and it uh, perhaps even traumatized the, the client. The, I can't tell you how many times... Uh, just, let, me just, let me just go on a little jag about trauma therapy... Even when I instruct people, my own supervisees and my own students, about trauma therapy, even when I am, and I'll go on for, you know, you know me, I can talk, and I'll go on for 30 minutes about the importance of not just diving into trauma narratives or diving into stories about people's trauma from their childhood. I will just emphasize how important it is that you understand the situation first before diving into it because you can actually harm clients. And let me tell you stories in which I used to harm my clients back in the day because I just didn't understand the nature of trauma. I'll go over this and over this and over this, and people will still, when a client comes in and says, oh, I've been traumatized, I have PTSD, the therapist will just flagrantly just, oh, well, what happened to you? Tell me, you know, how do you feel about that? And this is irresponsible, but it's understandable that people do this because it's such a common practice and it's such a common understanding. And that's, that's where I came from in the first five, 10 years of being a therapist was that when someone's been traumatized, they need to talk about it. When someone's been through something difficult, a healing action is for them to talk about it. And while that's true, unless you understand the nature of their trauma condition, trauma reaction condition, you might actually hurt them by asking them those questions. And 
they are not ready for those questions. They'll be ready. They'll be ready for them down the line after you go through a few steps. But, but anyway, I, I'm, 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 I feel like I'm swimming upstream against this cultural notion that again, when people say I've been traumatized, that the automatic thing that in fact, the best, I remember thinking this, I remember thinking, okay, this person has been sexually abused as a child the optimal, most wonderful thing that can happen is for that person to immediately start telling me about the details of that, of what happened and for them to say, oh my God, I've never told anyone this before. That was what I was looking for. That, that was like the golden nugget of therapy. It was like, they trusted me. They're processing their feelings. I'm validating their feelings. This is like perfect therapy. All the while, completely ignorant of the fact that, again, if the person has PTSD, there's a good likelihood that this will cause so much flooding and distress to them that it'll further solidify their symptoms and also make them run for the hills from therapy because for the next two or three weeks, they're going to be dissociating and or in high distress trauma reaction. Uh, And even when I am very mindful of this with my clients, I, to this day, still inadvertently go too fast with my clients. I I just had that experience recently with a client in which I've been very careful for years now regarding his trauma, and we went too fast in one session, and then things, you know, we had to recover from that for a few weeks, and that was my fault. And uh, anyway, so I'm I'm wondering if this uh, patron, patron Sid, if this is what happened, you know, she's saying it was a disaster with this new therapist because he, he used what seemed to be something based on trauma-focused CBT. And, and my, my criticism of trauma-focused CBT and the, I'm guessing, I'm just, I don't remember the episode, but I'm guessing I was, I was criticizing it because it often is utilized in this very rigid way that follows the 10 session model. I think the very strict version of TFCBT is, is 10 sessions and you by session four or something like that, you need to be, you need to be talking about the narrative. And so I was saying that this is ridiculous. It doesn't take into account the reality of trauma reactions and, and human pathology regarding trauma and if utilized to, you know, the way it's prescribed, it, it will actually harm a good amount of people. And so I'm wondering if that's what patron Sid is, is referring to. Having said that, I will say that TFCBT is often, I know it's used by people in a more uh, flexible way, in a more, in a very more nuanced way. I, I, I know of therapists personally who, and even of an agency that their primary mode of therapy is, is trauma-focused CBT. And I've had conversations with them, and they seem to have evolved over the years to understand that they need to be flexible given the specific trauma reality of particular clients. And so uh, I think uh, TFCBT can absolutely be used responsibly, but you just can't really follow it to the letter of the law. Anyway, so patron Sid is saying, maybe I need to go to DBT because uh, it'll help me. My 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 impression is patron Sid really benefits from a good alliance with a therapist who works relationally and who understands trauma very well. You know her first therapy. So my my hope is is that patron Sid can find a therapist 
like her original therapist. And that that's the ideal situation. Will DBT be helpful in the interim? As she says, yeah, like I said, DBT is helpful for anybody, really. But is it is it going to uh, be a furtherance of the treatment that she had with her original therapist? I don't think so, uh, based on what you're saying. It could, but DBT, as far as I understand, maybe I'm wrong, does not involve the transference, countertransference, relational work that is likely present, that was likely present in your uh, optimal relationship with the therapist that uh, had to terminate with you. What I will say is that if you shop around, you will find a therapist that is along those lines. It just takes time, though. And it's it's really discouraging to people because, you know, my guess is, is you would probably need to try out 10 to 20 therapists before you found one that was really optimal. And maybe even more than that. And that's terrible, right? To have to sit down for an hour, maybe even multiple sessions with 20 different therapists to find out which one's good for you. I mean, there are things you can look for on their website or their disclosure statement or the way that they advertise themselves if they use terms like relational or psychodynamic or interpersonal or intersubjective or relational psychoanalysis, but and psychoanalysis can be a little funny sometimes. Other keywords are obviously trauma and you know informed or expert in trauma. These kinds of things or EMDR people will obviously know a lot about trauma. So you can look for things like that. You could also interview people over the phone a little bit. And basically, what you're looking for is someone that feels good to you, that feels like you could trust, feels like someone's safe, feels like someone you could develop a relationship with, and someone that understands the nature of trauma and understands that you have to you have to move slow and you have to m- monitor distress and all that kind of stuff. And so that would be my hope for you, patron said. And incidentally, you sent me this email months ago because I'm just now getting around to it. So maybe you've already resolved this issue and you can let me know and then I'll let the, the listeners know how you're doing. Hopefully you're doing fine. Um, and in closing, I will say that I said a number of things about dialectical behavior therapy and understand that I don't know that much about it and I probably said some things that are in error and if you would like to respectfully point those out, that would be nice. But remember, as patron Sid said, ass talking is fun. I'm talking out of my ass, potentially. I'm not an expert on DBT. So enjoy the ass talking, people. All right, next patron email is from patron Laura. And she says, I am a licensed clinical social worker in private practice in the San Francisco Bay Area. I have been working in the field for many years, and I've started work and I've started supervising therapists. During your podcast, I have heard you talk a bit about your role as a supervisor, and I would love to learn from you. Would it be possible to hire you for a consultation session to discuss some questions I have about supervision? 
Actually, I remember responding to patron Laura way back when, and she actually did hire me to consult about supervision, I believe. And just to a general announcement to people is occasionally listeners, patrons will hire me as a consultant for various issues. I, uh, I mean, and occasionally people will hire me as their therapist too, incidentally. But if you're out of the state of Washington, that is not possible. And I also don't like to do therapy over Skype and that kind of thing. So if you don't live in my area, it's hard to conduct th- to do therapy. But some people will hire me as a consultant. For instance, if you're you're a therapist yourself and you just want to talk with me for an hour, you can hire me as a consultant. Uh, also, if you're not a clinician and you just want to consult with me about some general topic like borderline or something like that, then you can also hire me for that as well. And uh, I do that kind of work. And I actually don't charge that much. I only charge 140 per per hour, which it might sound like a lot to some people, but it's actually low given what people at my phase of career actually charge. I know people that charge two to three times as much as that. And I just feel guilty uh, charging <laughs> that much. Maybe I should, uh, but it feels uh, greedy to me. No offense if you're out there uh, charging a lot more. Uh, 140 feels somewhat greedy anyway, but uh, that's that's my general rate that I charge for everything. <laughs> Unless it's some kind of legal... Uh, court-related thing. Um, I only charge one forty for for most for most things, um, <clears throat> and that that price goes up every now and then as my self-esteem goes up. Just joking. Okay, uh, another uh, email from Patron Lois. Patron Lois says, "I once worked with patients who had addictions, alcoholism, drugs, etc." At that time, there seemed to be there 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 seemed to be a consensus a consensus that children of alcoholics had birth order reactions to the alcoholic parent. Is that true? If it is, I would appreciate hearing what you have to say about the subject. Patron Lois often writes in. She's a, a lovely woman, and so it's always great to hear from her. Sometimes she sends me pictures of her view from her house and she lives in an amazing uh, area with mountains and trees and wildlife and anyway so the short answer to your question and to repeat your question uh, do children of alcoholics have birth order reactions to the alcoholic parent is this true the short answer is no this is not true most of the common knowledge on birth order actually is a myth or confirmation bias. There, there's a lot of myths out there about birth order. You know, like, well, if you're second born, then blah, blah, blah. Or if you're an only child, then blah, blah, blah. There, there's some research that finds very small differences in personality related to birth order. But there are plenty of studies that show that there is no difference between personality, between birth order. You know, p- human experience is too complex for that. I mean, there there are studies, there's a good body of evidence that says there's no difference in personality between men and women. S- you know, just think about that for a second. In our culture, 
that notion is ridiculous, right? It's like, well, men are this and women are that. Well, if, if there are very little empirical differences between men as a group and women as a group, then certainly there are you know, differences between first, second, third born, you know, those, those, uh, are definitely not there as well. Again, cause human, humans are too complex for that. We have such specific upbringings and just reducing personality to a, to your, your birth order is really silly. I mean, think, think about, you know, what we're saying when you reduce personality to birth order, it's like, well, you know, it, are you so say you're you know it's like i'm i'm a middle child you know well oh, i'll just use myself i'm a middle child well you know the typical middle child is you know two or three years apart from their siblings so you have you know one child and then three years two or three years later you have another child and two three well i am in my closest sibling is like six seven years away from me uh, i have my older brother and sister I was born five or six years later, and then my younger brother is seven years younger than me. And also, gender plays a role. I have a brother, older brother, older sister, and then I came along, and then my younger brother. And so, you know, my experience growing up would would be quite different from a different middle child that grew up, say, in a family of 12 or a family of three, where... It was all girls, um, so it's it's really specific to the person. Um, and along those lines, I will use birth order to uh, inform my analysis of people's development and their personalities. But I don't just reduce their personality to, to the birth order. I I will look at how birth order might have played a role. For instance, just for myself, you know, I have my older brother. He was born into a a young family. My parents were quite young at the time. And then he develops his personality. He's the oldest Jap, you know, half Japanese son, which kind of means, you know, something. And he was, he was the, the first grandchild on that side of the family. And then my sister comes along and she's a bit different in personality. And then, like I said, six years later, I'm born. And then my older brother and sister are quite older than me. And so they're almost like other parents to me. So I have, you know, this, I have two sets of parents when I'm at the age of two and three and four. And so I grew up for a long time as being the baby and the youngest and really pampered in a lot of ways. And then later when my uh, younger brother came along, my older siblings had moved out of the house, they went to college. And so now all of a sudden I'm an older son to, you know, and so all these different roles of being responsible or being a baby, you know, everything was intertwined. That narrative and that story plays into my personality development, but you can't just reduce it to the fact that I was a middle child. You have to tell the whole story and add it all up to inform how my, how my uh, personality developed. And that's what I do with people is, uh, a full uh, a specific analysis of how their what their childhood was like that includes birth order but not just birth order if that makes any sense and you know it's it's similar to astrology when you assign these personality traits to this this factor people really latch onto it cuz it's simple and it provides this i don't know this is kind of like fun little th- 
game you can play. It's like, oh, well, you're you're youngest, so you're irresponsible. Isn't that funny? And blah blah blah. the The other thing is is there's confirmation bias, which is you know when you're looking for it, something, you'll see it, and when you when evidence presents itself that contradicts your bias, you ignore it. And so you just keep seeing, you only see things that confirm, you know, your bias. The, the other effect that's in society is that the more you tell someone something about themselves, the more they become that, you know, you tell an inner city, uh, low socioeconomic black kid that he's stupid and he's bound to be in a gang, the more he starts believing, well, that's, that's me. I'm stupid and I'm bound to be in a gang. The more you tell someone who is a middle child that they are going to be lonely all the time and left out, the more they start feeling that way. The more you tell an oldest child that they're very responsible, the more they start acting that way. And so there's there's a bit of that effect as well. I can't remember the name of that effect, but there's, there's a social psychology effect, uh, I think, that relates to that. So... Um, let me just give an example uh, regarding alcoholism and birth order and that that sort of thing. So, let's say a mother is an alcoholic, active, actively drinking, and the firstborn child has been elected by the family system to be the parent and caregiver of the mother. So, and it makes sense, right? Because you're the first child, you're the first child, you're the oldest, so therefore it makes sense that you would be elected and that you would volunteer for that role. This is all unconscious you know, processes that occur in families. But anyway, and then the second child comes along, and the second child is off the hook because the first child has already uh, taken the mantle of being the parent for the alcoholic parent. So the second child is off the, off the hook. And so in this tiny little example, you see how birth order in an alcoholic family can affect the experiences you have and likely an effect on your personality. But each case can be considerably different than the next. You know, in another family, the first child might be the rebel and the second child might be the one who parents the, the, the alcoholic parent. Or in another family, it might be an uncle who takes care of the alcoholic parent while the children don't have to. Um, there, there's, there's too much variability in families for this sort of thing. So, so that again, the answer to lovely patron Lois is there, um, you know, evidence that, you know, there's birth order, strong birth order reactions that are, that we can generalize about in alcoholic families. The, the answer is, is uh, mostly no. And I hope that I'm convincing in that way. All right, well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Again, if you haven't yet, please become a patron. You might have to actually go to your computer. I'm guessing that you have to actually, you know, when you get home, maybe you're listening to the car. You obviously don't want to do this where you're driving. When you get home, you actually have to open your laptop, go to your desktop or whatever, go to patreon.com, log in. Make, you, have, you have to make a Patreon account. It's not a big deal, but you have to make an account and then you become a patron and you you can become one of us. You can become one of our, I don't know, I think we have about 300 of us now and it's just so fun. So be fun like us and become a patron. Okay, that does it for the episode. Please, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really do.